Jonah and the whale, she answered. Tell me something, the pastor went on. Do you really believe that story about Jonah and the whale? Of course I do, the girl said in response. Of course I believe it. Scripture where God says, I want you to be extenders of grace is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Pretty clear mandate there. God reconciling the world to himself and Christ not counting people's sins against him. That is absolutely extending grace. And then he says he has committed to us that message. We are Christ's grace ambassadors as though he were making his appeal through us. What a call. But it's not an easy call <laughs> to embrace. Because it means having to extend grace to the last person you'd ever want to extend it to, which can be hard. I can imagine it would have been extremely hard for this, particularly, uh, this particular elderly South African woman I came across her story uh, in kind of this random uh, magazine, uh, Canadian Mennonite magazine. I don't subscribe to that, but it was in some of the preaching resources I subscribe to. Powerful story written by Stanley Green. The woman remains nameless in the article, but it goes into graphic detail of what she and her family went, to, went through during the uh, apartheid time in, in South Africa. The article begins by describing how this 70-year-old black lady rose slowly to her feet in a courtroom. Facing her from across the room were several white security police officers. One, a Mr. Vanderbrook, who had just been found guilty of taking the life of her son and her husband. The man had come to this woman's home a number of years earlier where he shot her son point blank. A few years later, she came back to his home, arrested her husband, and also took his life. Now Vanderbrook stood before her and the court awaiting judgment. South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission asked her in that moment if there was anything that she wanted. I want three things, she said calmly. I want Mr. Vanderbrook to accompany me to the place where my husband's body was cremated and help me gather his remains and give him a decent burial. Second, Mr. Vanderbrook took all of my family away from me, but I still have a lot of love to give. So twice a month, I would like for him to come to my home and spend a day with me where I can be a mother to him. Third, I would like Mr. Vanderbrook to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. And I would like someone to help lead me to where he is seated right now so that I can embrace him and he can know that my forgiveness is real. The elderly woman was led across the courtroom and Mr. Vanderbrook fainted, overwhelmed. Someone in the courtroom started singing Amazing Grace. Gradually, everybody joined in. 
That story doesn't sound real, does it? <laughs> Unbelievable. But it really happened. How could somebody extend that kind of grace to that kind of person? Well, the explanation I can come up with is that she herself was reconciled with God and knew that it was her mission to be an ambassador of that grace to others. That was Jonah's calling. That is our calling. But rather than embrace that call, here's what Jonah decides to do in the next few verses. Verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he laid down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you be asleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so we will not perish. Now the NIV doesn't really bring out too well the wordplay that is going on in the original language here. Uh, going all the way back also to verse 1 and 2. It illustrates that wordplay, just how far Jonah was trying to get away from God's presence and this call to go to Nineveh. The Hebrew in, in chapter 1 literally says, rise and go. That was God's call. And instead of doing that, it says that Jonah rose and fled. The only thing Jonah rises to do is to get away. And then the rest of his journey describes him going the exact opposite direction, doing the exact opposite thing that God asked him to do. God asked him to rise, but you notice he goes down to Joppa. He goes down to the ship, down below deck, falls into a deep sleep. He is trying to get as far away from this call as possible. And as many of you may already know, Tarshish, Jonah's destination, was considered the outermost western part of the world at that time. Nineveh was to the east. Are you starting to get the picture of what Jonah is trying to do? He is trying to get as far from God's presence, as far from God's call as he can. And why is that? Is he scared for his life? Well, we're going to read in just a few moments. He doesn't mind being thrown overboard uh, to save the sailors. I don't think he's worried about his life going into Nineveh to preach. Has he stopped believing in God? As we'll also read in very a short time here in this same chapter, he confesses to the sailors. He believes in God. He worships him. Why is he fleeing, trying to get so far away from God's presence and his call? Maybe to help give a possible answer to that question, I want to read to you from Eugene's Peter, Eugene Peterson's book, Under the Unpredictable Plant. If you've never read it, uh, it's a book that he writes more for pastors, but it's in it an incredible book going through the story of Jonah. Been a tremendous blessing to me through the years. He says this, why would anyone flee the presence of God? And I think I might have, awesome, have it on the screen for you. In un, as unreasonable as it seems, there is a reason, and it is this. A curious thing can happen to us when we get a taste of God. It happened first in Eden, and it keeps happening. The experience of God, the ecstasy, the wholeness of it is accompanied by a temptation to reproduce the experience 
as God. The taste for God is debased into a greed to be God. Being loved by God is twisted into a lust to God performance. I get a glimpse of a world in which God is in charge and think maybe I can have a chance at it. I abandon the personal presence of God and take up with the depersonalized and canny serpent. I flee the shining face of God for a slithery world of religion that gives me license to manipulate people and acquire God-like attributes to myself. Maybe that's what Jonah is struggling with. I think this part of Jonah chapter 1 is maybe the most believable part because I think it is a common struggle we all have to want to be God, to be the one who calls the shots, to want to go a different direction than the way God is leading because we feel we know better. I think Jonah disagrees with what God wants to do. I know better. I ain't going there, Lord. I'm going this way. But then we read on, and we get some more unbelievable details of the story. Verse 9, he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now, maybe this seems like a moment in which Jonah is being humble. He's, he's self-sacrificing. It's admirable he'd want to give up his life for the safety of those sailors. But why doesn't he say, turn around and go back to port? I've got a mission to do. God called me to do something. That's what he should be responding with. But he doesn't say that. He says, just throw me overboard. It seems like Jonah would rather die than extend grace to Nineveh, than to do what God has asked him to do. Nevertheless, God keeps working. God doesn't give up. We read in verse 13, Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, Lord have done as you have pleased. And they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. I find it fascinating that even amid Jonah's rebellion to extend grace to a pagan nation, God uses Jonah in this moment to extend grace to a ship full of them. Talk about unbelievable that their hearts were converted in that moment. You know, God is so good. God is so good that even when we are not at our best, and I would say Jonah is not at his best in this moment, God still finds ways to work through us, which is comforting because we are often not at our best doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to be our best. Absolutely. Our utmost for his highest, right? We should try to be at our best for God to use us. But maybe there's someone here today who is feeling like a failure. You're feeling like a hopeless cause that God cannot use. And you needed Jonah's story this morning to remind you that God does not see you as a hopeless cause. 
He does not give up on you. He can and still will use you, even when you're not at your best. And just when you think we have read enough unbelievable things in this chapter, we get to verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah just could not swallow the theology of God's grace. So in a surprise countermove, God swallows him by it. He doesn't deserve this, right? He has been selfish, disobedient, defiant, insubordinate. The way he's acted, he does not deserve saving, but by God's grace, he is. This mysterious divine mercy that Jonah finds so inexplicable and offensive turns out to be exactly what saves him. And this is, of course, the moment where people will look at this and say, that really couldn't have happened. No way. It's unbelievable. God would send a fish, swallow him up, preserve him somehow, save him in that way. No way. It's too absurd, too far-fetched. It's out of this world. Well, maybe that's exactly the point. I don't doubt for a moment that God really performed this miracle. But maybe God went out of his way to do something so unbelievable here because he wanted Jonah and he wanted you and I to understand what his grace is really like. There's another story in Scripture that talks about God's unbelievable grace. My favorite story, I know it was just talked about a couple weeks ago from one of our guest speakers here at camp meeting, but I think it's the perfect illustration to close with today. The story of the prodigal son. Remember how the son went about as far from home as you could back then. Right? Asked for his inheritance while his dad was still healthy and alive. How disrespectful that would have been. Squandered his wealth and wild living amongst foreigners. At our camp uh, retreat at, at Pine Springs Ranch, if you were there, Pastor Carl Hafner talked about that tradition. If you spend and waste your family's money with foreigners, there's no coming back to the family. You are disowned. Top it all off, he was working as a pig farmer. There's no going back after this. As far away as you could get, as bad as you could get. And so the son, when he's hit rock bottom, he has an epiphany, right? He thinks, well, maybe I can get back. Maybe I can go back if I just go back as a slave. And, and so he, he has this whole plan worked out, this whole speech made. When he gets there, Father, just make me one of your hired servants. I can, I can sweep the floors. I can, I can wash the windows. I can sleep in the, in the servants' quarters. Then maybe he'll accept me back. I, I can maybe earn my key to be there. But you remember what happens when the son is just a, a far way off from home. The father sees him because he's been looking for him. And the father runs to him, and, and maybe some of you have heard those details. It's so humiliating, so embarrassing for a grown man in that time to do that because you've got to lift the robe up and expose your legs like a young boy, and he's, he's sprinting. He's taking all the humiliation, all the shame to his son, and he's putting it on himself as he's running out there. And the text says that he embraces him and all his filth from that long, dusty journey coming straight from the pig farm. It says he kisses him, and in the, the original Greek, it, in, it implies that he can't stop kissing him. Does all those things to restore him to the family, throws a party just one moment after another to swallow his son up in grace. 
Well, one day soon, family, you and I, we are going to come home to our Heavenly Father. We are going to enter that new Jerusalem, and we are going to step out on that sea of glass. We're going to see the gates of solid pearl. We're going to walk the streets of gold. We're going to see Jesus. And there's going to be lots of things I know that we're going to want to say in that moment. But I wonder as we take in everything, we take in all the beauty, and we take in Jesus before us, that we might not think to ourselves and say, I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve all this with you, Jesus. Maybe there's some streets of gold I could sweep. Maybe there's some gates of pearl I could, I could polish. And Jesus will stop us from going any further. And he'll say, no, son, daughter, there are not enough streets of gold for you to sweep or enough gates of pearl for you to polish, for you to be able to be here with me. How about I just give you grace? There's many ways in which we describe the grace of God. Many words we use, great, sufficient, amazing, and our praise team is going to lead us through a song singing about God's amazing grace in a moment. But maybe the best description of them all is simply unbelievable. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. It's so amazing, Lord, that sometimes, at least to me, it seems unbelievable. Lord, today we are committing to putting our trust, our belief in your amazing grace. May we let our lives be swallowed up by it and extend it to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.